let me emphasize, as Randy did, that this is uh, this preaching cycle is unusual. We are, as our name suggests, Christ Bible Church, committed to expounding God's Word section by spe- section, book by book. Uh, but we're doing something a little bit different this Sunday and the next two Sundays. We're talking about um, an ideology that is very influential in our, our world, critical theory, goes by many names, intersectionality, uh, social justice. We're explaining it, and uh, we're, we're offering a biblical evaluation and critique. Uh, like last week, there is a handout if you haven't gotten one, uh, it could be helpful. It has an outline of the message, very broad, allows room for note-taking, and it has some of the key quotes, uh, even bonus quotes that I won't use in the message. Uh, so there's that. Uh, quotes on the back of the handout. So if, again, if you haven't gotten one, raise your hand, and someone, somewhere, somehow, uh, will get you one. There's Sandy there. and Yeah, Greg. It is coming. Okay. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are without equal, glorious, majestic, gracious, the Savior of sinners. Father, as we deal with unbiblical ideologies this morning, uh, we pray that there would not be even a hint of self-righteousness as we remember what we are, sinners saved by grace. If there is any good, if there is any truth, if there is any righteousness in our lives, It is because of your initiative through Christ that we are what we are. So let our posture towards divergent and unbiblical viewpoints be marked by a biblical opposition, but also humility and gentleness, uh, recognizing recognizing what we are and were apart from Christ and what we now are in him, redeemed sons and daughters. Uh, We pray that as we critique error, our delight in the truth would deepen, that we would rejoice in the biblical realities that you've made known to us. So let this time be profitable, Lord. Let Christ be honored. Uh, Grant as a result of these messages that we would uh, live more wisely in this world and be more faithful to you. Amen. Uh, I should mention the fact that the first message in this series, which we did last week, is foundational for everything else. Everything will make much more sense if you listen to that message. Uh, so I encourage you, if you weren't with us last week, to uh, listen to the message because, as I say, it establishes the foundation for everything else. In a nutshell, what we said last week is that critical theory views society as fundamentally defined by conflict between different social groups, between different races, different uh, genders. Uh, and the dominance of the oppressor groups is maintained not mainly through physical force, through the use of law enforcement, for instance, but in all sorts of subtle ways, all sorts of subtle social realities maintain the unequal arrangement of society. For instance, how we speak about things and don't speak about things, how language is used uh, contributes to oppression. Ideas can be oppressive. Social institutions like schools Uh, both in terms of what they teach and how they teach can be oppressive. Even politeness codes can be oppressive. So that's the vision of society that we looked at last week. It informs what we're going to say today as well. Today, though, we're going to take a step forward in our discussion and look specifically at the way that theory looks at gender and truth. Gender and truth. And specifically, from the standpoint of theory, uh, traditional gender distinctions and a commitment to absolute truth, these things are viewed as oppressive. These things 
uh, perpetuate inequality in society, and, and we'll see why that's the case. So essentially, today's message intersects with last week in that it shows us how gender and truth function uh, to maintain inequality in society, to maintain the dominance of one class over others. So let's start with gender, and we're going to begin by looking at the biblical view of gender and gender distinctions. And to do that, we actually need to even take a step further back and begin where the Bible begins with a fundamental truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you understand that, you're 90% there. The Bible begins with an antithesis, a sharp distinction between the creator and his creation. And what we discover in Genesis 1 is that God's creation is not chaos. God's creation is just that, creation. It has an order. It has a structure. It has a design to it. There are distinctions that Genesis 1 speaks of. When God creates, he separates the water from the land, the light from the dark, day from night. Uh, there are distinctions among plants and animals. The animals and plants are created according to their kinds. God's creation is not like that little boy's room where in the center of the room you have this undifferentiated mass of socks and toys and coats uh, just all heaped together. Uh, God's world instead is like the room where every sock is in its proper drawer Every coat is on the hanger. Every uh, shirt has been folded neatly and put in its place. There is order. There is design. The Apostle Paul uh, refers to this natural order in a few places in his writings. One place is Romans 1.26. There women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Notice what he's saying here. It's not simply that homosexuality is immoral and contrary to God's law, he's also saying that it's contrary to the proper order of things. There's a creation order, and homosexuality violates or contradicts that order. In fact, the moral law of God itself reflects the character of God and the order that he has established in creation. This is another way of saying that God's laws to us are not arbitrary but they reflect what it means to be truly human. They reflect what it means to live like a human made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis captures this very well. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he writes, when the poets, and here by poets he means the psalmists, so biblical authors, when the poets called the directions of Yahweh true, they are expressing the assurance that these are based on the very nature of things and the very nature of God. His laws have truth, intrinsic validity, rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own nature. To submit to the moral law of God is to be truly human, to behave according to the blueprint of God for humanity. See this uh, also in Ephesians 6.1. We could make this point in a variety of different ways, but in Ephesians 6.1, the Apostle Paul writes to children, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now the word right could perhaps simply refer to its, the fact that it's obedience to the law of God, and that's true, uh, but Frank Thielman, New Testament scholar, suggests that the word refers to conduct widely acknowledged to be fair and proper. It is fitting. It is in accordance with the order of things for children to submit to their parents. 
There is a structure that God has established. Parents have authority over their children, and children ought to obey. This is right. This is fitting. Similarly, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, we aren't just obeying the law of God. We are functioning the way that human beings were intended to function. Human beings were designed by God to love and put others first. And when we act in accordance with uh, God's blueprint, we flourish. And when we disregard God's design, we wither. A fish is made to be in the water. What happens to a fish if you take it out of the water? It withers and dies. What happens to a human being when he no longer lives in accordance with the moral law of God? He withers and dies. Life is impoverished. This should be an encouragement to us, by the way, to obey. Obedience is the path of blessedness, the path of life and joy. Uh, We ought, in submitting to the Creator's design, we experience joy and peace. Now, having established this, that creation has an order, a design, a structure, we need to recognize that gender distinctions, the distinction between masculinity and femininity, man and woman, is a part of that created order. Men and women are both created in the image of God. They have equal dignity and value. They both image God, and yet they are wonderfully, gloriously, and mysteriously different. Masculinity is wonderful. Femininity is wonderful. And blurring the distinctions, the God-created distinctions between men and women is unnatural as well as evil. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul writes, does not nature itself, again, notice there's this conception of a created order, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Now, I'm not going to comment on hair lengths here. The only point I want to make is that when we, this is the key thing, when we disregard distinctions between male and female masculinity and femininity, we are acting in a way that's unnatural, contrary to God's design and order. Uh, we rightly recoil as uh, unnatural when we see a man dressed in a dress, for instance. Uh, that recoil is, is, is the result of the perception that this ought not to be. This is not the proper order of things. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This distinction between man and woman is profound. It goes all the way down, uh, and masculinity and femininity uh, are both wonderful. Chesterton once made the observation um, that only a fool tries to say, which is better? Chesterton says, if I set the sun beside the moon, if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. It's folly. There's a mystery and a wonder to gender distinctions put there by God, and we should revel and rejoice in these distinctions. It is a glorious and beautiful thing to be a woman and to be a man. And because of this complementarity of the sexes, uh, marriage, which is also instituted by God, is by definition a heterosexual institution. It's for a man and a woman. Gay marriage is, by definition, a contradiction in terms. Marriage reflects this distinction between man and woman. And as a man and a woman commit to each other, covenant together in marriage, this becomes the basis for the family, for producing godly offspring. 
So gender distinctions, marriage, and the family are God's designed. They are firmly anchored in the created order. That's the biblical perspective. Theory, however, denies all of this. As I've had a chance to do some reading and modern, uh, engage with different modern ideologies, it seems to me that one consistent problem that recurs again and again is that there is a rejection in one way or another of the created order. These ideologies tend to be atheistic and godless in their view of the world. There is no pattern or meaning or purpose or blueprint for life. There is nothing. Blackness, chaos, meaninglessness. It is not God the creator who fundamentally defines right and wrong, good and evil, beautiful and ugly, natural and unnatural. These things are human constructions and to that extent arbitrary. They don't reflect the way the world really is. They reflect simply cultural preference at a given moment in time. But what you say when you say that is that you disenchant the world. You say the world isn't actually beautiful. There is no right and wrong. There is no meaning and purpose. It's all just nothing, and these things are arbitrary. Theory applies that way of thinking to gender distinctions, as I've suggested, and argues that uh, gender distinctions are simply social constructs. We as a society have decided to treat people as either a man or a woman, and so we force people to choose, but these things aren't anchored in reality. They're not anchored in any kind of created order. We've simply made them up and required people to play the part. In reality, there is no meaningful distinction between masculinity, masculinity and femininity. The line has been blurred. One result in academic circles of this blurring of the lines is that increasingly in, at the university level, there is a move away from women's studies to gender studies. It becomes hard to be a feminist if there aren't women. If you can't make a distinction between men and women, you can't have women's studies, and so you see a move towards gender studies. By the early 2000s, right, uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose in their, in their book, Cynical Theories, note, by the early 2000s, a dominant view within feminism was that to speak of women and men at all is incoherent. Women and men are regarded as constructions or representations rather than real entities. We've arbitrarily decided as a society that there are such things as masculinity and femininity, and then we have foisted that arbitrary understanding on people. That's the view of theory. Now, I want to stop here and make a quick qualification. We should recognize that gender distinctions come from God. He makes distinctions between men and women, but how those distinctions play out is in fact shaped by culture. So culture shapes how masculinity and femininity are expressed, but culture does not create those distinctions. God does. So for example, in Scotland, to my knowledge, they can wear kilts, and it's manly, uh, that's less true here, right? It's not manly. Now, some cultures, men can peck each other on the cheek, and it's fine. That's a little strange uh, in our culture, right? So culture can shape how masculinity and femininity play out. In fact, it does. We should recognize that. But the distinctions are still fundamentally from God. Now, what theory does with gender distinctions, it also does with the family. Instead of viewing the family as anchored in God's order, it views the family as one possible social arrangement among many. 
It's socially constructed. So for example, uh, Owen Strahan quotes the Black Lives Matter website, and apparently this excerpt that he quotes has been taken off the website, but it was there at one point, at least that's the claim. Uh, for those of you who may not know, Black Lives Matter is a movement that is thoroughly woke and committed to social justice. And one of the things that writ was written in, in the website is this. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that, are, that collectively care for one another. So what's interesting about that is that the nuclear family is not viewed as firmly anchored in the created order, right? It's natural, it's, it's built into the fabric of reality. The family is a social construct, one possible arrangement, a Western arrangement. It's not a universal arrangement. It is simply a construct. Owen Strand uh, uh, observes and critiques this way of thinking when he says, in, in this anti-order, which I thought was a good distinction, it's, it's an anti-order. The Bible teaches a created order. This worldview is an anti-order. In this anti-order, there is no creator, no divine design, no male or female, no script for sexuality, no God-designed family with a father, mother, and children. It's all, these are all socially constructed. Now, here's the key question. If gender distinctions masculinity, femininity. If these are not real, why has society created this distinction? Theory's answer to that question, and you'll notice a, a consistent refrain as we work through this. Theory's answer to that question is that society has created gender binaries to oppress certain groups and maintain the privilege of other groups. We require people to identify as male or female to protect the privilege of cisgendered individuals. Cisgendered simply means that you self-identify with your biological sex. So if you're a man, you think of yourself as a man. That's what it means to be cisgendered. Uh, gender binaries protect the privilege of cisgendered people, and they oppress transgendered people, people whose self-perception is different from their biological sex. Gender binaries also oppress those who don't neatly fit within the categories of male and female. So gender distinctions are viewed as oppressive, as maintaining the privilege of some and holding others down. And this is why for social justice people, they can't simply agree to disagree with gender traditionalists such as myself. They can't simply say, okay, well, you're wrong about gender, but let's coexist peacefully. Well, the reason we can't coexist peacefully is because from their standpoint, my ideology is not just wrong, but it's oppressive. It's holding people down, and it needs to be torn down. That ideology needs to be attacked because it's hurting people. The ide ideology produces a kind of violence against people, so it, have to, it has to be actively opposed. Gender distinctions are viewed as oppressive, and therefore, we need to tear them down. Well, what do we say about this biblically? Uh, first thing we want to say is that it rejects God uh, and his authority as creator. It rejects God's fundamental right to define you rather than you defining yourself. Who, after all, has the fundamental right to tell you who you are? The biblical answer is God. God determines who you are and what you are for, not you. 
And you are called to recognize what he has made you and submit to it, not define yourself however you want to. It is God who fundamentally has determined who we are, and in love and submission to our creator, we, are, we ought to say, thank you, Lord. A, a frog glorifies God by hopping, a bird by flying, a, a rock by sort of sitting there. Humans glorify God by accepting what they have been made, man and woman, by submitting to his design for gender and indeed submitting to all of his moral law. In that submission, we experience freedom. We're like that fish in water rather than the fish out of water, water who is withering. Now, we, we need to say uh, that dissatisfaction with gender is just one way we can be dissatisfied with our creator's design. Most people here probably are not dissatisfied with being a man or a woman. But you might be dissatisfied with other aspects of who you are. Some of you wish you were taller, uh, better looking, smarter. You wish you had different gifts than the ones you actually have. Uh, you wish you weren't so socially clumsy, awkward, but knew how to interact with people with greater finesse. And you envy those who can. Right? There are all of these different ways in which we... Uh, don't like who God might have made us to be and want to be someone else. And I want to just encourage you by saying we honor the creator, we glorify him by being who he has made us to be. He's given us some gifts and not others. Praise God. He knows what he is doing and we rejoice in being who has made us to be. Apply the same principle to the times you live in. Why are you where you are in your particular situation, economic struggles and uh, blessings? Well, all of our times are in, are in God's hands, and we glorify the Creator by submitting to His will. He defines us. We don't define ourselves. What theory says is, God, I'm not going to let you define me. I'm going to decide who I am, and that's radically disobedient. Second thing to note is that theory rejects, as I've said already, God's created order. It rejects God's design for human life, and it says that we can find freedom and flourishing by disregarding that design, which is viewed as oppressive. In fact, true freedom, joy, life, and blessedness comes only for, from giving ourselves absolutely to the will of God. When we abandon ourselves without rema remainder to the Creator's will, we flourish. Isaiah 48, 17 through 18. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. If you had yielded, your peace would have been like a river. When we yield to the wisdom of God revealed in his commandments, life is good and we flourish. We become truly human, even as we recognize that to rebel against God is also to be human, dehumanized as well as immoral. One of my favorite examples of the life-giving power of being connected to God from the Gospels comes from that moment when, um, in Mark chapter 5, where we are introduced to a man whose life is just chaos. His life is in ruins. He's a man who lives among the tombs and the graveyard, who shrieks, who doesn't have any clothes, who's out of his mind, who is oppressed by evil spirits, uh, no purpose, just tortured by the powers of darkness. And that man comes to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And on the other side of that encounter with Jesus, 
Uh, Mark tells us that when the people from his village came to Jesus and they saw the man, they saw a man who was clothed and in his right mind. Notice the transformation. Oppressed by evil forces, screaming among the graveyard, no hope, no purpose. He encounters Jesus. He's clothed in his right mind. And indeed, Jesus gives him a purpose. He makes him an evangelist. and He says, go back to your friends and, and family and tell them what I've done for you. After he encounters Jesus, he has purpose, direction, sanity. Uh, the encounter with Jesus makes him truly human again. Makes him what God had intended him to be. Understand that that is what happens to all of us when we come to Jesus. Jesus takes the broken pieces of our lives and he puts them back together. We start being what God had always intended us to be as we submit to Christ as our Lord. In him there is true freedom and life. So that's how theory views gender. Theory also has a certain view of truth. And it has certain similarities with its view of gender in that truth, like gender distinctions, are culturally constructed. This means that we don't know the world as it really and actually is. We don't have absolute truth. Instead, what we see when we look at the world is what our culture conditions us to see. Think of cultural conditioning as a, as a pair of glasses, very thick glasses that distort everything we see. Well, culture is like that. Uh, the, the language we use, the ideas we have, it so colors our perception of the world that we don't actually see the world. What we see are simply what we've been conditioned to see by our culture. Uh, Robin D'Angelo gives an example in her book, Is Everyone Really Equal? And she says, uh, take a tree, for instance. Uh, there might be some Native American groups who, when they look at a tree, they see a symbol of life. Uh, there might be a scientist who, when he looks at a tree, sees a specimen to be analyzed and studied. A logger looks at a tree and sees an employment opportunity. But no, in each case, no one just sees a tree. Their perception of, their, of the tree is colored by their social position, by their cultural conditioning. Now, we need to grant that there's an element of truth in this. All of us have biases because of our upbringing and our culture. Uh, all of us look at the world in culturally conditioned ways. Uh, that's true. Uh, that informs even our interpretation of Scripture. We should be aware of our biases as 21st century uh, Americans and note cultural discrepancies when we read Scripture to interpret it more clearly. Right, culture shapes our perception of things. But this fairly uh, obvious observation about knowing has been inflated to make a much more radical claim that we can't actually know truth. All that we have are truths and perspectives, uh, but not one absolute truth. Truth is unknowable. Now, again, the question we have to ask from the standpoint of theory is if there is no true and false, there are only perspectives, uh, why then do we as society deem certain ideas to be true and others false? Now, I think you can guess at this point what their answer is going to be. Oppression. Maintaining the present unequal social arrangement that benefits some and not others. Now, think about this for a second. If it is true that there is no true and false, and notice the contradiction even there, but if it is true that there is no truth and falsehood, 
then the, when we evaluate an idea, we can't evaluate the idea based on true and false because we don't know those. So how do we evaluate ideas and knowledge claims? We evaluate them by asking who benefits. Who benefits from taking this idea as true? Which social group has their interests advanced by viewing this idea or this claim to knowledge as true? All claims to knowledge, to know certain things uh, as being true, are basically power grabs. And the really significant question is not, is it true or false? But who's benefiting? Whose interests in society are being advanced by viewing this idea as true? Nancy Piercy captures this well. She says, if there, if there is no objective or universal truth, then any claim to have objective truth will be treated as nothing but an attempt by one community to impose its own limited subjective perspective on everyone else, an act of oppression, a power grab. And you, wonder, you can see the inner logic of the thing. There is no truth. So when I claim that this idea is truth, it must be that, well, since truth is unknowable, that I'm trying to get you to buy into it so I can have a certain kind of power over you. Belief in absolute truth is viewed as oppressive and reinforcing the present unequal status quo. Now, there's a further implication of denying absolute truth. If we can't know truth, then all methods of knowing are equally valid. Evidence and reason are no better than experience and emotions and uh, folk traditions. All of these different ways of knowing are equally valid or invalid because we can't know truth. It's just that certain cultures privilege some ways of knowing over others. Now here's the interesting question. Why has society chosen to prefer certain methods of knowing like reason and math and evidence over other ways of knowing like personal experience? Answer, oppression. White men privilege reason, evidence, and math. And so those tools of knowing are privileged because it reinforces their social position and dominance in society. What we need to do is open the door to other ways of knowing, other knowledges, uh, folk traditions, lived experience, so as to give a voice to marginalized groups. There's a thing called research justice, where the idea is to quote white men minimally and quote minority scholars more uh, to sort of balance the bias that white scholars have towards evidence and reason. Uh, we want to open the door to other knowledges to give a voice to oppressed classes. James Lindsay in his book Cynical Theories writes, this form of oppression, call it epistemic oppression, um, the oppression that comes to people when their preferred method of knowing is not widely accepted in society. That's epistemic oppression. This form of oppression is alleged to occur when the knowledges and knowledge-producing methods said to be used by marginalized groups, including folk wisdom and witchcraft, are not included within our prevailing understanding of knowledge. Let's open the door to different ways of knowing the world is the proposal. I even came across an excerpt from a an engineering textbook published by the University of Purdue, which advocated that the first thing we need to do in engineering education is abandon absolute truth. That's comforting when you think about engineers. Whatever else they do is they, they do math, have a robust confidence, presumably in a, in a correspondence between uh, mathematical formulas and the structure of reality. Maybe that confidence is being shaken. 
Lindsay quotes uh, one scholar who says, math is a tool of Western imperialism. Math is a Western construct. Not likely to endear the peoples of the world to theory as they try to build roads and bridges. Uh, James Lindsay also notes, arguments have been made that mathematics is intrinsically sexist and racist because of its focus on objectivity and proof. It's a white male way of knowing that keeps women and racial minorities out. Which, if you think about it, is pretty racist and misogynistic, actually. Because the implication is that women uh, and racial minorities uh, can't think with precision and rigor and do math. The implications, in my view, are actually pretty terrible uh, when you actually reflect on the implications. But that's theory. There are different equally valid, valid ways of knowing the world, different methods of knowledge production. All of them should be privileged because this allows oppressed groups to have uh, freedom from their oppression and a voice in society. How should we think about this biblically? Well, I want to say two things here. The first is this. Uh, God has so structured the world that there is a correspondence between what happens in our mind and the nature of the world. We can know truth. When we look at the world, we can know the world as it really is. Now, two qualifications are in order. To say that we know something truly does not mean that we know it exhaustively or completely. I know my wife, having been married to her, going on 16 years, I trust that if the Lord gives us days, I will know her better in 20 years. So I know her truly, but not exhaustively. Same thing with Scripture, right? We can know true things in Scripture, but not know everything that there is to know. So the claim to know the world truly does not mean that we know everything about everything. And secondly, as I said earlier, we should grant that our culture, our upbringing, our families, all of these things condition us in certain ways and generate biases, and that's fine and normal. We should be aware of these as we look at the world and take them into account. But we can know truth. The desire uh, to deny that we know truth is often a, an attempt at moral evasion. If we don't know truth, then we don't know God, we don't know his moral law, and we can't be held accountable. Scripture teaches that we do, in fact, know truth, and we know many things about God, the world, and ourselves, and that these things are, in fact, inescapable if we are alive and conscious in God's world. So, for instance, if you are alive, conscious in God's creation, then you know God inescapably, even apart from Scripture. Now, you don't know everything that God reveals about himself in Scripture, but there's a basic knowledge that all human beings have of God simply by being awake in the world. Romans 1, 19 through 20. What can be known about God is plain to them, mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The created order is constantly preaching to us. The trees, the rivers, the sun, the seasons, they are preaching to us about our great God and his wisdom and his power. Now, we choose to close our eyes and uh, close our ears. That's true because we hate God by nature and are rebels. But God is constantly revealing himself to us. Psalm 19:1. the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are preaching to us about the glory of God. We know the moral law of God. All human beings 
have a general awareness of God's moral requirements. Romans 2.15, they, the Gentiles or non-Jews, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Because we've been made in the image of God, we have a basic moral awareness of what God wants from us, of what he expects from us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Abolition of Man, has an appendix at the end of that book where he compares the moral codes of different civilizations. Looks at ancient Chinese civilizations, Egyptian, uh, Babylonian, uh, Jewish, and what he shows is that there's a remarkable overlap in these moral codes. They have far more in common than in terms of what separates them. So, for instance, while we might acknowledge that there's a great difference between Chinese culinary tradition and Mexican culinary tradition, Chinese food and Mexican food, equally delicious, very different, right? Those are two very different culinary cultures. Uh, If you compare Chinese and Mexican morality, what you find is far more overlap than you do in cuisine, right? And that's because there's a universal moral law that all cultures have an awareness of. God's moral requirements are known according to the scripture. We know that judgment is coming, Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. There's an awareness that judgment is coming, that we are guilty, that we are violators of God's law. This is known. According to scripture, there are many things that all human beings do in fact know about God themselves and the world. Truth is knowable. Even fundamental matters like what God expects of us is known. Second thing then is if truth can be known, then we should evaluate ideas first and foremost by whether or not they are true. The first question in evaluating a truth claim or knowledge is not who benefits. In a sense, that's irrelevant. The question is, what is true? Where does the evidence point? And if it is true, regardless of consequence, I embrace what is true based on what is revealed in Scripture and evidence and reason and so on. The mo- this is a very modern way of reasoning. If I say that studies show that there are differences between men and women, you don't actually have to refute my reference to the stats. All you have to do is point out that I'm a white man, and of course I would say that. In other words, the fact that my group would benefit from that claim means you can dismiss my argument. Right? Oh, you're a man, you would say that. You're a woman, you would say that. Uh, when you can show that someone somehow benefits from a claim to knowledge, you don't have to engage with their argument, you just dismiss them because it's a power play. This happens with some frequency, frustratingly. Even in the church, this can happen. Somebody makes a suggestion, we should have a prayer meeting on Friday. And oftentimes, people attribute motives. Oh, they're just saying that because they want to lead it, they want attention. They're just saying that because they want to look especially spiritual. Uh, They don't engage with the merits of the proposal. Is it biblical? Is it a good idea? What are the relevant facts? Is it a good proposal or a bad proposal? We ignore that, and we can be tempted to attribute bad motives to people. You're just saying that because this proposal benefits you. As God's people, we want to judge all things fundamentally in terms of what is true and false. Is this idea true or is it not? That's the criterion that we should apply. So according to Scripture, we know the truth. Our problem is not that we don't know the truth. According to Scripture, our problem is that we hate it. We hate God and we love evil. And this is the thing fundamentally that distorts our perception of reality. This is the thing that causes us to misread what's going on in the world. Because we love evil apart from Christ, 
we reject what God has revealed of himself in the world. Think of it this way. Suppose there is a mother who is absolutely committed to the, the proposition that her son is good through and through and he can do no wrong. So when the, a principal writes home to that mother and says, hey, your son is actually pretty not mistreating the other kids, she says, oh, that, that principal is just jealous at how good my bo- boy is. Disregard that. Uh, friends of the family come and say, hey, your son's pretty awful. Oh, yeah, they're jealous too. They wish their kids were like my boy. She notices that money is missing from her purse. Oh, well, he couldn't have stolen it. Uh, It must be that I dropped it somewhere. Everything is interpreted according to this absolute commitment that the boy is good through and through. All of the facts are distorted because of this presupposition, this commitment. The The same thing holds true with our love for evil, our hatred of God. We distort everything that God has revealed of himself. Paul says in Romans that we suppress the truth. Uh, We see the world in a distorted way because of our opposition to God. We are blind and unable to interpret things clearly because of our moral corruption. John 3, 19 through 21 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We don't want truth by nature. We want to run from truth. We want to run from God and we want to hide in the darkness because we love it there and hate God. That's fundamentally what causes us to distort truth and run from it. We are spiritually blind and not able to see things as they really are. The only hope for us is that God would give us sight. We are incapable of transforming our own hearts and causing ourselves to love God as we ought. We need Jesus. But praise be to God, Jesus has come into the world to change us. Jesus gives sight to the blind. Those who hated the truth and ran from it through Jesus can learn to love the truth and submit to it. When we recognize our moral darkness and our blindness, what we should do is say, Lord, give me sight to see. Change my heart. Help me to love God and love the truth. And through Christ, we can regain a love for what is right and true and good and beautiful and pleasing to God. Through Jesus Christ, we can live in accordance with the truth and stop suppressing it. That's the way life was meant to be lived, according to God's blueprint and design. When we yield to it more and more, we flourish and he's glorified in our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you are so kind to us. You found us when we were running from you, and you have given us grace again and again, and you've exhibited gentleness again and again, and we pray that that would be our posture and demeanor towards those who see things differently. Help us to extend the same gentleness and goodness that we have ourselves received. Uh, We pray, Lord Jesus, that if any are tempted by these worldly, unbiblical ideologies, that you'd protect them and grant the truth to triumph in their lives. Amen.